This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Heaven: A New Beginning," was recorded at Wellspring Church on June twenty third, twenty nineteen. The texts for this message are Genesis chapter two, verses one through nine, and Revelation chapter twenty two, verses one through five. Hear now the word of the Lord. Genesis two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight, pleasant to the sight, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Revelation twenty-two, verses one through five. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more; they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. So far, the reading of God's word.、You、may be seated. As I shared last week, we will be doing a series on heaven throughout the summer. And if it were up to me, we would have read chapters one through three and all of Revelation today. But that would have taken two messages.、Um, so we'll be doing a lot of jumping back and forth in the Bible. And I hope you. Have a Bible. If you don't, if you have a phone that has a Bible on it, it will be really fruitful. But most of the verses will be on screen. The question is, why talk about heaven today? Many, many reasons.、Um, a number of them will be covered throughout our time together. First of all, when we understand heaven, we understand why we should have courage in this world. And I do think that today, more than ever, we need courage. It's very easy to think that the world is getting a particular way, and、uh, becomes so easy as Christians to think we just simply should hide or slink away. But when you understand that this world is truly not our home, if we are believers of Christ, that there is an eternity to be lived, and this eternity is one that is so glorious, so astounding that. 
It will really make the best experience we could ever have in this world pale in comparison to that reality. It will give us courage. Also, many of us have experienced death. You've buried loved ones, or you will. Or you yourself will face that one day, and you will. And often you hear phrases such as, oh, they're in a better place. You might even say that to yourself. They're in a better place. You try to convince yourself of that. But the reality is we have no idea what that better place means. What is a better place? How do we really know that to be true? If we don't understand what our eternity is, then it's really hard to deal with death and sorrows and grievings. And it's very easy to be overcome by it. And especially as we ourselves face death one day, if we don't understand what we're living for, what we have to look forward to, then we go to that place with utter fear and terror. I don't think that's what the Bible shows how it should be. Also, we just need perspective. It's so important. It's easy to be overwhelmed by our emotions and our feelings in this life. Circumstances come with all sorts of trials and difficulties. And in those moments where we feel a certain way and our emotions get the best of us, it just seems as though everything now is urgent and critical. And when you're in that place, we become, we succumb ourselves to our weary, worn, faulty hearts. Perspective is so critical to understanding how do you live this life to its fullest. And an eternal perspective is absolutely what we need, especially in the midst of downward spirals and times where difficulties and our minds just seem as though they cannot escape from the flurries and anxieties and worries of life, we need to understand what heaven is all about and why it's important for us. But to do that, we have to do a few things. We have to dispel our automatic assumptions of what heaven is. And the sad part is that our assumptions of heaven are so often founded on songs, such as Brian Adams' Heaven. I know I'm dating myself here. You know, again, another 80s song, Belinda Carlisle's Heaven is a Place on Earth. Uh, I'm really going to the 80s. Sorry, everybody from the 2000s. And, but, you know, when I was in high school, there were TV shows such as Heaven Can Wait or movies such as Ghost. In 1972, there was a, a Christian rapture movie called A Thief in the Night. Anybody watch that movie? <laughs> There's like five people watch that movie and know exactly what I'm talking about. And that created fear because suddenly people are going to be gone. Rapture. What does that mean? You know, that's how we think of heaven is we, we base it on movies, songs, or maybe a couple of popular books actually that have come out within the past 10 years. One was a book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. It's a, it was a best-selling, New York Times best-selling book published in 2010 by Tyndale House, so a Christian book by about a boy named Alex Malarkey who was in an accident and supposedly went to heaven, came back. And you know what was found out? It was a hoax. He actually made it all up, but it was a best-selling 
New York Times best-selling book. A second book recently by Col another boy, Colton Burpo, who wrote a book called Heaven is Real, New York Times bestseller. And there's some really crazy stuff in that book. I read a number of excerpts. I didn't want to read the book. I didn't want to spend time or lose my life a little bit in reading that book. But that is the sad reality is that we get so much of our views of heaven based on little snippets and stories, someone who went to heaven, allegedly, um, songs and movies, and generally perceptions. But the one place we so often do not turn to to look at what is heaven, why is it such a place to impact today, is the Bible. And whether you realize it or not, the Bible says a lot about heaven. And there are some things we're going to be exploring that we don't have clear-cut answers all the time. And I think there is a re there is something to that. We're not going to know everything about the mysteries of God. But I do think God's Word does show us enough and much about what we have to look forward to and how that should impact the way we live today. So today really is a framework message. It's a message that hopefully shows you that the Bible has a lot to say. And to understand it, we need to first go back to the first place heaven was created. And yes, heaven is a created place, whether you realize it or not. And all you need to do is go back to the first verse of the Bible, which is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. More often than not, we tend to think of heaven as the afterlife. I think most of us think of heaven that way. What happens to you after you die? But Genesis 1-1 shows us that heaven is not about the afterlife. Heaven was there before life. And we have to think about heaven as a place that is all-encompassing over time and space in many different ways in which we perhaps have not viewed heaven. In actuality, Genesis chapters 1 through 3 show us a lot about heaven. And in fact, you could say, you could make the case that Genesis 1 through 3 is heaven. Maybe not the way we think of it to be, but I hope to show you that it actually is a prototype of heaven. And I'm going to call it the garden heaven, because I do think that when you understand what heaven is, foundationally, heaven is a place that God has created for himself. It is his dwelling place, the place where he resides. And until we see and understand that, we won't really understand heaven itself. Now, it isn't that God needed shelter because the rain was pouring down too hard and he wanted to get out of, from the cold. John chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus says that God is spirit. So heaven, in this instance, where God resides, is a spiritual place. But as only God shows, there's a spiritual place with a physical dimension. I don't, we'll talk a lot about this up and coming. And we see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And then God just begins to reveal how does this work where there's a spiritual context for God who is spirit to dwell, but there's a physical location to it. 
Also, by using that phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we have to understand that heaven has truly that duality, that there is a, a spiritual, physical reality. One thing that, as I was studying this text again, and this is the, the power of God's word, is that the more you read it, the more you realize, I still have a long way to go to understand and to explore. And one thing you know about Genesis chapter 1 is that so often it's characterized, every time God creates, he characterizes it as it was very good. It was good, 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 and then very good. The quality of what God is creating characteristically is good. We understand that. And that's generally how we mostly think about those modifiers, those adjectives to describe God's creation. But as I was just thinking about heaven and thinking about Genesis 1 in this context, began to think about this idea that God not only created in and of itself good things, but as a God who is by nature good, the essence of all that is good, when he is building the very place where he is going to dwell, he's creating the place that fits him. God is, again, inherently good, and therefore, in order to create and to dwell in this place, it has to be something that is fitting to his nature. Think of it this way. It's almost like when you go and buy a house, and it's a fixer-upper, and you do what we're doing with the church building. You just tear it down, and you, you get an idea of, okay, I want this type of wallpaper, whether you even have wallpaper anymore. They don't use wallpaper. Paint, carpeting, or you know, hardwood, and you want the rooms to be this way, and the designs to be this way. When you think about that, design it, it's to make yourself happy with that house. This is the place you're going to reside in, and you're going to spend a lot of your time in, and so you're going to pick colors and patterns and schemes and designs that fit who you are. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, it's, it fits you. When God created the world, he didn't create it to say, okay, I'm going to create this world. I'm going to send it out over there. I'm going to live over here. According to Genesis 1 through 3, he dwells in this place. He is, he is creating a world that he belongs in, that he's going to be with his creation. And so that's why there's this listing of all that is good because it fits him. What a wonderful promise of Genesis, isn't it? God saying, I love my creation. I've built it exactly how I want it to be. And I'm going to be here with my people. Then he, we learn in Genesis chapter 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God, Adam and Eve, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's very clear that God is present since God is spirit, he's not physically walking. You don't see God's legs walking around. It's just sort of legs walking and this disembodied spirit on the top, on the torso. It's that God's presence is with Adam and Eve. And he was fully there as spirit. In a physical place, how that works exactly, again, we'll talk a lot about that later. But one thing we do know is that God planned to be there. And to understand then 
the future heaven that is to come. We have to delve deep into this garden heaven that God created to be, in a sense, heaven, where he dwells. There are a number of features. I'm going to just list them about this place. In chapter 2, verse 10, verses 14, where we see that the garden is surrounded by water, that there are rivers flowing around it. All of these things you have to keep in mind because these are mostly repeated in Revelation and the rest of the Bible. So what you see in the garden is a prototype. It's a blueprint. And the Bible, especially in Revelation, but a a lot through the, the prophets, the Psalms, they sort of flesh it all out throughout the rest of the Bible and especially in Revelation. So don't pass by Genesis 1 through 3 without remembering this truly is the beginning and the the prototype of God's kingdom eternally. So this place is a place surrounded with rivers and water. In verse 15, we find that Adam is working. God puts him to work prior to sin coming into the garden. This is going to say, we will touch on this significantly, but much about what heaven is going to be like, as if to say, is heaven a place where there's no work? If we were to look at the garden, it would seem the answer is, no, heaven is a place where there's work. And you think, oh, no, not that. We'll talk about why, actually, you will want to work in heaven. Third is that there is there's a structure. There's an authority structure. There's rule and authority and dominion in the garden before the fall. Before the fall. So this is all pre-sin. And everything that's pre-sin shows us that God had created it this way, and so therefore what is to come in the future probably will also have these components. In verses 20, uh, so in verse 20, we're found that Adam is naming, having dominion over the animals. In verse 25, we know that there is no shame or fear or guilt in the garden. The nakedness that we see is not, oh great, is having to be a place where we're all naked and we're going to see each other that way. The point of the nakedness is not physical nakedness, but what that physical nakedness signified, which is no guilt, no shame, no fear. Verse 9 tells us that they were given full access to enjoy the garden. Nothing was withheld from them. Verse 9 tells us that there are two trees in the middle of the garden. Very important, these two trees. One was the tree of life, was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees in the garden. Next is that they could eat from the tree of life. Do not mistake the idea that they could not eat from the tree of of life. There was only one tree they were not allowed to eat from. Verses 16 through 17 of chapter 2. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. I take every to include the tree of life because every is very all-encompassing. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the garden, there is a sinner before Adam and Eve. I don't know if you ever thought about that. We always think of Adam and Eve being the first sinners in the garden, but there's a sinner in the garden. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then Jude 6 comments on that. 
And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So prior to uh, Adam and Eve, there was a, a story that was had something to do with angels, rebelling against God. We'll talk about that in the future. We're going to cover all of these features in the garden in some form throughout this series. Some of these features are clearly present in the new heaven and the new earth. And some will be very different. But you cannot understand heaven without understanding how this garden heaven becomes corrupted and how it isn't going to be that place where God ushers in a new kingdom, a new place. That this heaven and earth that God has created is now radically affected by this corruption. And where incredible beauty and peace existed now is marred with suffering and sorrows. My family and I went hiking not that long ago, a couple of weeks ago, at Tamales Point in Point Reyes. Have you ever gone hiking there? It's an incredibly beautiful hike. It's right by the ocean. And as we were getting closer to the point, to Tamales Point, which is really the end point, the tip, tipping point right that leads right into the ocean, there's about a mile before that of beautiful wildflowers. Uh, it's just spectacular, really. And they're all different colors, just gorgeous. Two of my daughters wore shorts on this hike. And the challenge was that in the midst of walking through, their legs were getting pricked by all the thorns that were there. And throughout, I kept on asking, are you okay? Are you okay? You know, that what's, what's so striking is in the midst of beauty, there's these thorns. And it actually creates harm. And that's sort of what has happened in the garden, really. In the physical garden as well as in life. God created all things good because he meant it for himself. And you want God to do things for himself, not for you. The more God is happy with himself and joyous with himself, the more we get the spillover of all of that goodness. And there's a lot, eternal goodness. But when we and Adam and Eve rejected God, no longer would it be just simple beauty, God's beauty, but it would be now thorns and thistles and hurts, and sorrows, and pains. It's the world that we live in. As great as vacation is, we get tired of vacation. And we come back home, and we think, I wish I was on vacation again. And just the cycle keeps on repeating itself. I wish I had this job. You get the job. I wish I had another job. Well, these kids are great, but they're not so great. This husband is so awesome, but not so awesome. I mean, it's it's just this unending cycle of beauty with Thorns and thistles. As much as flowers are beautiful, poison oak is not so beautiful, but it can be beautiful. The flowers can be. But the effect of it is miserable. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and turned to themselves as their source of hope and satisfaction, the garden heaven was so corrupted that a torrent of consequences wrecked this heaven. And it was no longer a suitable place for God to dwell. For God to be good, he could no longer dwell in that place or else he wouldn't be God. It would go contradictory to his nature. And so 
all these consequences started flooding out. Let's look at some of the consequences. Chapter 3, verse 8. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Fear, guilt, and shame entered into the garden heaven. Broken relationships through distrust and blame shifting and self-centeredness and grudges and anger and backbiting and gossip entered into this garden heaven. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Broken relationships, distrust, blame shifting. There's an introduction of pain and poisons, killing, murders, attacks. In chapter 3, verse 15, we see that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Before this, no attacks, no pain, no hurts. In this place, now in verse 15, we see there is going to be a Satan who is not only going to tempt, but is actively plotting to destroy. Parenting, the, the multiplying of God's creation becomes impacted. Now it becomes difficult, frustrating, and heartbreaking. If you're a parent, that's part of your life. And be prepared for that because it, you can't escape it. And the reason we can't escape it is because it happened here in the garden. Verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth your children. I think most of us, when we think of this, we say, well, that's a curse towards the woman. And that's dealing with physical labor pains. No, it's pain, you shall bring forth children. I know one thing is that Whatever pain my wife goes through in bringing forth children and bearing and raising, it's, I don't get protected from that. You know, all of these things are directly impacting each other. They're all overlapping. There's no differentiation between what one person suffers and the other person is, is unaffected from that. It's the garden corruption is that everything is impacted all the time. Another thing about these relationships, especially marriage relationships and relationships between men and women, is that that has been corrupted. There's misplaced longings now, spurned affections, disappointments in attempts to relationships, desires unmet, loneliness and despair. Verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Abuse, sexual abuse. Uh, we see that in our culture more than ever. And this has been going on since the beginning of time. Another thing we see is in verses 17 through 19 in chapter 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. This is to the man... And we often think of this as regarding work. Work is no longer going to come easily. Or it's not good. What's, what it really means, again, I don't want to shortchange the future, but the idea is that when you work, it's not going to be as productive as it should be. But I don't think it's just about work. This idea of the cursing of the ground 
is a cursing of all of the ground, society, culture, government, that as long as we are in this world, we will face the hardship and the tensions of living together, of not producing the full peace that God had initially created. And then we see in verse 19, physical weakness, debilitation, aging, deformities, disease, pain, grieving, death. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All of these are really bad. But you know what's the worst of all? The worst consequence? Verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Adam and Eve had to be ejected from the garden. Because remember, this is God's dwelling place. This is the place where God said, all of my nature, my being, by who I am, I reside here. And now that Adam and Eve had said, we're going our own way, God's saying, then you need to go. Because if you were to dwell with me in that state, I could never be God. I wouldn't be a God you would worship or consider. So Adam and Eve had received exactly what they were promised by taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had decided, I don't need God. I'm going to decide for myself to be God. I'm going to determine what I think is right, which is, by the way, the motto of hell. And on hell probably is a big sign, or not really, but the idea of it is that I am my own God. I will do what is right for me. That's hell. And so God gives them exactly what they want. You want a life apart from me and you want to see what that feels like and what that's going to be like? Well, you're going to get it. If heaven is where God dwells, then they were expelled from heaven. And the unattended consequence of getting their heart's desire is what they failed to see, which is not only that they depended on God for their life and their well-being and prosperity, but what they didn't realize is that everything depended on God's presence for its well-being and prosperity. So everything is impacted. Animals, plants, the foundations of the earth, heaven, all of it is impacted by what Adam and Eve had, had done. So in this sense, the earth becomes a little bit of a taste of hell. A place devoid of God's life-giving presence. And for the first time, you know, it's very important to understand when God created in verse 1 the heavens and the and the earth, and then it begins to list all these things of who God is and how he dwells with Adam and Eve and how he's living there. Truly, heaven and earth are joined together. There's a, a, there's a unity that the universe understands. But when sin enters and rebellion enters, for the first time, heaven and earth are separated, are split. There's a chasm. And that chasm is infinitely great. Greater. If you've ever gone to the Grand Canyon, you think, wow, that's a big chasm. Well, multiply that times infinity, and that's the distance now between heaven and earth. Do not think spatially about heaven. A lot of theologians sort of say, it's not up there. The reason we use that is because Jesus ascends. 
But the idea of it is not necessarily up in the skies per se, but some say, who knows, it could be another dimension, whatever it might be. But it's not necessarily always about up there and down below. We try to use those metaphors the Bible does just to simply give definition, but we have to go beyond that. So that's where we're at. The rest of the Bible then begins to just say, this is how life is going to be in the midst of all of that brokenness. If it were to end there, it would not be good news for any of us. But as only God can do, he begins to restore heaven again. We see that starting Genesis, verse 15 and verse 21. The very reality that the the serpent is going to strike you know, at the feet of the descendant, but that descendant of Adam and Eve is going to crush his head. And then we see God making clothing out of animal skins to cover their shame and their nakedness, both clearly a foreshadowing of one to come who's going to cover shame and guilt due to sacrifice, as well as being able to eventually bring victory over this enemy. And that we see as Jesus Christ. The Bible is so rich in talking about the idea that God doesn't just simply sit back and say, I'm going to eject you and that's the end of the story. But instead, God begins the work of restoring and renewing and reviving. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you read that verse, and if you memorize it, as I did when I was in college, memorize that verse alone, apart from anything else, you get discouraged by that verse because you think, I'm I'm definitely not a new creation. I thought I was a new creation, but I feel exactly the same way. I do commit the same sins have the same struggles. But this verse is so rich. And when you think about creation, when God is recreating you, conditionally in Christ, the condition is in Christ. When when you place your hope in Christ, who has now purchased you, redeemed you, been your substitute, that what he's doing is He is making you for a new place. He's restoring you back to where you should, where you belong. It's not just that, well, I'm slowly being renewed and I'm, I'm being rid of my sinfulness. You know, that, that's hard to see in this world. But what God has done is He's had, He's done an objective work today for you. And what He has done is He has made you completely new so that when you die, you belong with him again. You are renewed forever. It's not that you will be a new creation. You are in Christ. He is a new creation. How does that happen? The reason we get mixed up with this verse is we think, okay, I'm perfectly new now. But no, the answer is not that. It's that in Christ, when he has purchased you, He has made you perfect eternally with him one day. You are belonging to what you were meant to be 
in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And that can never be taken away from you. And the way we see this fleshed out so much is in Revelation 22. So we're going to turn there. This new beginning of heaven. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you read that text carefully, those words should sound familiar to you. Because most of those ideas are in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. In Genesis 1 through 3, we see that there is a river. Verse 10 of chapter 2. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. There was the tree of life, just as we see in Revelation 22. And most of all, God was present, just like he was in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. But there are some key differences, and those key differences help us to understand heaven. First, there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Remember, there were two trees in the garden, but in this instance, there's only one, and it's the tree of life. Because through Jesus Christ, by his blood shed, no one will ever even think or imagine of trusting anyone other than him. There'll be no temptations to think, I can do it better myself. We will always think trusting and believing in Jesus, placing my hope in him eternally is far better than anything I could ever do myself. And so it's not just that there's no temptation. There's no desire at all. There's not even the possibility of a desire to want anything. And in this world, there's always desire to want something to make us happier with life. It's every reason why we're looking for new experiences, new movies on Netflix, a new, a new article of clothing, something in my career path. We want healing and physical changes or emotional changes in our lives that is going to make us finally happy. The reason we feel that way is because of sin and the brokenness of our relationship with God. But in heaven... That's not going to be the case anymore. Forever satisfied. Second is, there's no, there's no Satan and there are no longer consequences of sin. No longer will there be anything accursed, John sees in Revelation. We'll talk a lot about Satan later, but he will be gone. And there is nothing in this new earth that harms, accuses, tempts, or deceives. There's no futility. There's no shame. Can you imagine a place where there's no fear, no death, no suffering? Nothing hinders us. Never again broken relationships. 
Because according to Galatians 3.13, Jesus bore the curse of sin on a cross, on a tree. Because he bore that curse, curse is gone. The ground produces. Relationships thrive. Thirdly is there is no day or night. Think about day and night today. What causes it? The earth's rotation? Um, how that rotation interacts with the sun and moon? Stars in the sky? And because of that, it gives us time of rest and restoration. We need that. Sleep is a good thing. It restores your body. But why is restoration so important to us? Because our bodies are needing it. They will decay if you do not get sleep. So 72 hours of not sleeping can really do dangerous harm to you. But imagine a place where the light, and according to this text, God's glory produces so much light that out, outshines the sun. It's almost as if, if you were to take your you know, uh, flashlight on your cell phone and point it up to the, the bright noonday sun and say, my flashlight provides more light than the sun. That's ridiculous. Well, infinitely more is God's glorious light, just the nature of who he is that produces that light that it's not that the sun and the stars are gone. It's that his light is so spectacular that it, out, it just washes out the sun and the moon. You won't see the sun and the moon because it's so glorious, the light. But the thing about this is that imagine a place where there's no sleep and you might think, oh, but I love sleep so much. But the reason we love sleep is because we're trying to escape. We're tired. We're worn. But imagine a place where we're never tired, where it's a full productivity with fruitfulness and joy all the time. Most of us think, oh, I wish I could exist on less sleep, four hours. And you might even say, I can. I do really well like that. Just read the book, Why We Sleep. It shows you that you can't. It's impossible. You say you do, but you're, you're lying to yourself. Anyway, the idea of it is full restoration, revitalization, productivity, joy, and fruitfulness all the time, and it never ends. Lastly is, in this place, there is the Lamb. You know, what we see in Genesis 3 is, God is in the garden. But Revelation shows us in the new earth, God is in the garden, but there is also the lamb. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it says that the lamb was there as though it had been slain. One thing that the new earth will have that the garden did not have is that we will see Jesus as a slain lamb. In other words, the gospel that Christ gave his life for me eternally, forever. It's not going to be where we're going to see Jesus. Still, he will have nail marks on his hands and feet. We will never forget what he has done for us. And it's not to make us feel guilty, but it's to make us filled with such joy and worship because we say, I get to be in this place not because of anything I did, because all I did was mess up and rebel. But when I look at you, Jesus, I'm reminded of why I'm here and why I'm loved. 
and why I'm satisfied so much. Because you gave everything for me to be here. And that produces joy unspeakable. C.S. Lewis writes about heaven this way in The Last Battle. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. This is the telling of the story of Narnia. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was on the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. What heaven is going to be, what we're living now is, if you're in Christ, you are living the preface of your book, the book of your life. Heaven is a place where every chapter is better than the next forever. And when you understand and know this to be true, think about how it impacts your day today. What perspective you gain and what foolishness is there when we think we are stockpiling our riches, our money, our time, our generosity. Spending so much on frustrations and irritabilities based on pittances. Heaven, or to put it more accurately, when we believe in Jesus, our final state, of which heaven is one part of that final state, is chapter one of this great story. Where heaven was separated from earth, in Genesis 1-1, in Revelation we see heaven and earth come together once again. And it's because of a slain lamb. When we believe Jesus Christ, it transforms you forever. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, oh, my friends, you do not want to miss this. This is not just a matter of life and death. This is a matter of your eternal life. And you do not want to miss that. Oh, I love when I go and I have seen people live to the literally the last breaths of their life. What a marked difference between someone who sees the glories of heaven. And I pray that what this series does and what exploring the Bible does is it prepares you to say that, Lord, on that last day, I never want to be afraid. But I look to that point where I am with you forever. But it should make a difference now what you spend your time in, how you think about relationships and community, as we're going to talk about later, how we think about our resources, how we think about our children's upbringing and what their future goals are. It really is utter foolishness if our whole focus is but five years, 10 years, 20 years, 70 years. If all it is is I need them to succeed, to do well, to provide for me when I'm old. That is utter foolishness. But heaven shows us glory, beauty. I hope you enjoy what God is going to show you through his word. Let's pray together. Father, 
We are a, a people who are far too short-sighted. We get so consumed with ourselves, just like Adam and Eve did. We're no different. But thank you that even after rebellion, you began to restore and renew immediately. And you did it at such great cost. One day we will see the slain lamb forever and ever. And just like the Apostle John in Revelation, we will fall to our knees. Fall not just to our knees, but flatter in our face. Because we are so awestruck with how you could love us so. How you could love us so deeply when we rebelled against you so miserably. Only from that truth today will it impact the way we live as though we truly are, as Paul says in Philippians 4, that we are citizens of heaven now. Not in the future, but now. We are new creation today because we are made for a different place, a place where you are. And we can experience the joy of that today. So I pray that as we come to this table, Lord, that we would not forget not just the price that you paid, but the future hope we have that resides with you, the joy. We just thank you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.